When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's jump right in. Um, So I just want to preach to you this morning on, quite simply, God's sovereignty and salvation. It's so clear. I think the the key verse in this text, to me anyway, is um, verse 28. Where, where Peter says, you, you, uh, you did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What seemed like an absolute mess, what seemed like a cosmic train wreck, the, the arch crime of history, the murder of the God's own son. Peter is saying here, God planned it. He used all the evil and the sin of man without excusing any of it to save us, to open up a door to salvation. And as we've been Preaching with our Muslim and Jewish friends for the past three weeks especially, he's the only door to salvation. If there were any other door, he wouldn't have come and suffered as he did. There's no other way. You can't do enough good. He's done it all for you. He is the way to God. And so Peter just talks about how that's completely of God and none of us. And so we're going to dig into that together. But I wanted to start just by talking about John Bunyan for a sec. Um, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, um, it's been translated into more than 200 languages. Never, it's never been out of print. It's been in print since the 17th century. Um, it was the longest, it was the largest, it was the best-selling book behind the Bible for centuries. Um, and Bunyan wrote it in prison where he languished for 12 years. 12 years, the better part of 12 years for preaching the gospel in 17th century England. He was a tinker. He was a tinker by trade, so he worked with metal. He used to travel from town to town with a 60-pound anvil and toolkit on his back. And that's pictured in, um, in the load that his main character, Christian, carries on his back for the first part of his journey. And um, Bunyan himself, he didn't just carry a literal load on his back, he um, of 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 steel and of iron and tools for his trade, but that pictured the way that he long felt about a load that he carried through trying to please a God that he knew is wrathful against his sin, through trying to obey, through trying to do enough good. He writes about the release of this burden in his account of his own conversion, which is called grace abounding to the chief of sinners. He says this, he says, but one day as I was passing in the field I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. I saw that it was not my good frame. I want you to listen to this, friends. He said, I saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, or yet, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself and Jesus Christ alone. And when he when the Holy Spirit helped him to understand that in his head and in his heart and that penny dropped, his load fell off. And it recalls the line to me of the hymn that says, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Um, That's what happened to Bunyan and it's what happens to Pilgrim when he comes to the foot of the cross in his journey and the Pilgrim's progress. His load is cut free because he realized Christ took that load for me on the cross and he is my righteousness. And there's nothing more that I can add to it. I'm completely righteous before the Father. I'm completely accepted before the Father. I'm completely loved 
before the Father. He is totally sovereign in Christ over my salvation and over the relationship that that engenders and brings me into. So we're going to talk mostly three points this morning, um, but mostly in the first one and the second two are quite short. Praising the sovereign Lord, first point, for his salvation in the Messiah. We see that in the first uh, five or six verses, 23 through 28. So praising the sovereign Lord for his salvation. Uh, And then secondly, prayer for power to continue proclaiming. So they praise him and then they pray a prayer and then God answers in verse 31. So we're gonna look mainly at praising and then we'll finish up with prayer and God's answer. Um, But we just to kind of go back to to last week, to the first part of Acts 4, um, when Peter and John are hauled up before this tribunal, of the, the, the who's who, the bigwigs, so intimidating. They ruled in every way, Jerusalem, um, religiously and really politically as well. And they haul Peter and John up for what? Y'all remember back a week? What, what, what were Peter and John hauled up before this council? Yeah, for, for a healing. And you, we remember how bold Peter was is before the cross, he, he denied his Messiah three times, but afterwards filled with the Holy Spirit, which there's a huge emphasis in this on, hey, fill us with the Holy Spirit, Lord, again. It's not, it's not we who are bold in and of ourselves, but we need the filling of your spirit, Jesus, to be bold as you were and as you are. And so we're gonna talk about that, but he's so bold and he's funny. And he reminds us of Jesus himself when Jesus was on this earth. He says, hey, if we're being put on trial for the healing of a man who's been crippled since birth, if that's why we're here in trouble, then let's go. And that's just, it's really funny. It recalls Jesus in John 10, who says, I've done many, I, I didn't look this up. I think it's John 10. I should have checked it and I didn't, I didn't do it. I, he says this in the gospels though. I've done many, they pick up stones, the Jews do to execute him, to stone him. And he says, I've done many good works. He's healed people. He's, he's healed the blind. He's, he's opened their eyes. He's unstopped deaf ears. He's raised people from the dead. He's cleansed people of leprosy and on and on, Right? He's forgiven paralytics and prostitutes of sin, all their sins because he knows he's going to the cross to pay for them, right? He's done all these things. He says, I've done many good works. For, this, for which of these are you gonna stone me? We, so we, it's just funny. It's tragic, but it's comedic at the same time. And, it's, and it's, it's funny because we're so blind. And so we see Jesus in Peter, but to underscore the blindness of the rulers again from last week in verses 16 and 17 of Acts 4, they say, basically, we can't deny, they say to Peter and John and to themselves, as they kind of back up and whisper in their counsels, we can't deny that this miracle has taken place because what? The dude who has been at the temple for decades, who's been lame since birth for over 40 years, he's sitting here standing up as a testimony right with Peter and John. We can't deny this has taken place, but in order, what's their conclusion? But in order that this, may, this kind of nonsense and mischief may spread no further, stop preaching the name of Christ. Stop this. Stop doing this good. Stop healing. So what I wanna say here is just that we see how blind they are, but I wanna say this and kind of lower the hammer and lower the boom on us. Apart from God's spirit opening our eyes, this is a picture of how blind we all are. This isn't just a picture of them, how blind they are. It's a picture of how all of us are caught up in this net of blindness. So I wanna advance that and just say that not only are we all blind to the truth of Jesus Christ and his good news, unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, we also are all opposed to God, to go a step farther. Um, In Psalm 2, which Peter quotes here, and they all quote as they're praising God, they go to Psalm 2, and they say, this is being fulfilled here. If you read it in its context, even even as they talk about it here, look at, Verse 25, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? It goes on to say, and the kings, um, why did they gather themselves together and the rulers, right? In verse 26, it seems like in the context of, this is a messianic psalm talking about how the Jews are going to receive their Messiah and he's gonna set everything to rights. All the words here are Gentiles, peoples, rulers, kings of the nations. It seems like, it seems like um, it's saying that they are all opposed to God. They all shake their fists at the Messiah. They want nothing to do with him, but the Messiah is gonna be the Jewish solution. But actually, um, the way that Peter reads it here, we see that the Jews are also included because he's saying what? He's saying this is also talking about our own people who crucified the Messiah, right along with the Romans. We're all complicit. We're all opposed to God, and the Messiah alone stands 
as God's solution to our salvation. No human effort, quite the contrary. When we are given the chance to try to save ourselves, our solution is to crucify the very Savior that God has sent. This is, our, this is, this is we're all in this together, and that we see that as they, as they, as they say this. Um, so Romans 1 through 3 um, Paul says the same thing in chapter one. He kind of sets forth the gospel briefly, Paul does, in, the, in his letter to the Romans. But then quickly, starting in Romans 1.18 and following to the end of the chapter, what does he do? He shows how we're all guilty before God. No matter what we have or don't have, by way of his revealed will, we have enough to know that he is God and that we've rebelled against him. We've gone our own way and we've run to our own sins and our own idols. So he, in the first chapter, he says, look, all the nations and all the Gentiles, all the non-Jews, they all stand guilty before God. But then in in chapter two, Paul moves to the Jews in in chapter two of Romans, and he says, but you Jews, you're no better. You have more revelation, and therefore you actually maybe stand even more guilty because you too are breaking God's law constantly. And then in chapter three, he advances right before opening up the glorious gospel in verse 21 of chapter three of Romans. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. He's quoting from the Psalms. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Let that ring in your ears and heart in contrast to what some of our brothers and sisters were saying on Thursday night about how we are the ones that need to do good and to make up for our... No, Paul is telling us through the very word of God, no one, Jew, Gentile, Muslim, Jew, Christian, no one does good in and of himself, not even one. All of our works are evil and corrupt. So how do we, and I wanna say, yes, unbelievers who haven't trusted in Christ, but believers too, how do we manifest this opposition to God? Um, We do it in a a bunch of ways. One of the ways is through irreligion. So you think of the prodigal son, the guy who runs away and just squanders his living and his father's inheritance and does whatever he wants to. Think about the idols, the gods of this world that we worship. Even as believers, we can can profess um, faith, a real faith in God and allegiance to God, but we we can be putting our faith in what Tim Keller calls and probably others, functional idols. What is that? That's things that we're actually trusting in instead of God. Um, And some of those things are wealth. We get caught up in the things of this world. We get caught up in our own uh, sinful flesh, right? We wanna wanna trust in wealth. We wanna trust in the esteem of others, the good opinion of man. We wanna trust in social connections, who we know, our education, our resume, our profession, our job, our family even. These are all good things. But when we make good things ultimate things and we put our trust and our hope in them and depend on them for our happiness, and we find ourselves spending our affections and our love on them and putting our weight on them for self-worth to tell, to tell ourselves, this is who I am and this gives me worth. And if this is taken away, I feel like a complete failure. That's a way to identify a functional idol. Um, that is opposition to God by way of irreligion. But also religion is opposition to God. Um, Jesus plus, the plus Anything but Jesus that we add on to Jesus for our salvation, for our complete acceptance to God is religion, is not the guy, is anti-gospel, it's anti-Christ. It's a plus, Jesus plus. So think of the older son in the prodigal son parable. The younger son ran off and was completely irresponsible. Think of idols, think of running after the world. Think of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, the, the older son was dutiful. The older son stayed on the farm. The older son did everything he was told. But the whole time, what? He felt like he was trying to earn the father's love because he said, he, he called himself, he's like, I've been slaving away. You, you, you're, you're killing the fattened calf for the younger son who deserves to be backhand slapped and cast out of this community and out of the house. And, I, and I've been working for you my whole life, basically trying to earn your favor. I've been slaving away. And the father quickly corrects him, gently and quickly, and says, come into the party. All that I have is yours. In other words, you can't earn sonship. It's always been yours, but Jesus comes to bring us back into that sonship, and it's all of him, and it's none of us. And if we're, a lot of times we live trying to do good things and clean ourselves up, even if we say we trust in Christ. And so this is really 
um, this text is really convicting in that, in that sense and takes us back to the idea that only Jesus saves. We cannot add a single thing. And all that God has is ours in Christ Jesus. It's all ours. We are made sons by conferred status through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus' performance, this became so clear to me, and I hope, and I'm sure to a lot of you, as over the successive three Thursday nights, as we were speaking with our Muslim and Jewish friends, um, that Jesus' performance rather than mine, it, it, it ultimately boils down either to my performance before God or Jesus's. Which are you relying on? And his performance, as opposed to mine, and rather than mine, as a basis, a basis of my acceptance and salvation, um, is unique among the world religions. There's nothing else like it, and it is scandalous. People could not, unless God opens their eyes, they were continually, every Thursday night, scandalized as they begin to see what the gospel really is, what the message of the gospel really is, which is this message, they began to be scandalized by the idea that someone else could live in your place, obey in your place, his record could stand in your place, and die for you in your place for all of your evil and sins against a holy God. That is scandalous, but that is the gospel. Um, another thing before moving on um, in this point is that another way that we, we are opposed to God is that we don't trust him as father. Even as believers, um, we, we aren't believing, none of us, we are, none of us are believing fully what the cross tells us about the love of the Father. And the fact that he loves us so much that he gave his most precious thing, his own son. He gave his very self, all of himself. He held nothing back for us. So that whatever situation we're in, we tend to look at the situation and think God's holding out on me. He's not to be trusted. As opposed to looking at the cross and going, no. The, the cross is God's ultimate word to me. It's the word of God in flesh come to rescue me, come to give himself for me, dying for me on a Roman cross and telling me this is how much I love you and this is how much therefore you can trust me even when your life seems to be falling apart. This is my ultimate word to you, Hebrews 1. There's no greater word. There's no other word. This is the heart of the Father. Um, but we believe that we're defined by our failures, the challenges in our lives, or perhaps even by our triumphs, and that's idolatry. And that's not trusting in the heart of the Father. That's a lie. We are beloved sons and daughters brought home, run after by Jesus and brought home by Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. Um, let me drill down now just into the, into the, the beating heart of this passage. Um, God is totally sovereign in accomplishing our salvation. Peter is so clear about this. He needs no help from us. He gets no help from us. Quite the contrary. Not only does God not get any help from us in salvation, not just one time on the cross, but ever, ever in our lives as we walk with him. He never gets help from, for our salvation from us, never. He completely accomplished it and gives it to us as we receive it by faith. Quite the contrary, we did everything we could um, to nail him to the cross, right? So no one helped God when he saved us. He did it alone. That's the point of verse 27. Let me read it again. For truly in this city, Peter says, after quoting Psalm 2, for truly in this city, this is, this is Peter unpacking Psalm 2, okay? Or the, this, whole, this whole small crowd, including Peter, um, unpacking Psalm 2. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. What? Who was, who was gathered against God himself? Who was opposed to God? Whom you anointed, both Herod, who was over the area as governor, and Pontius Pilate, a Roman, along with the Gentiles, okay, the nations, and the peoples of Israel. Um, everyone was, in a word, everyone was gathered against God trying to save us, coming to us and saying, this is who I am. This is me manifest completely. Hebrews chapter one, Jesus is the very image of God and God himself and God's son, his eternal word. This is who God is, and what happens when God shows us who he is? We crucify him. Everyone, everyone is included in that. Jew, Gentile, everyone. That includes you and me. And let me just say this. I want to underscore this and then move to a close of chapter, of, of, verse, of uh, my first point, and then two quick points, and I'm done. I want you to get this, though. 
until you and I own this and really believe this, that we were complicit we, in the murder of the Son of God and that we can not only do nothing to save ourselves, but quite the contrary, on our own, we more than get in the way. We help kill him. Um, until we truly believe this and don't just say it, we cannot be saved and we can make no progress in walking with God. We did nothing except the worst thing. Jesus saved you completely by himself. And that does not end once you get saved. Your, your life in Christ, once you have believed on him, is not you starting to add to that salvation. It's you working out the salvation that's completely been bought by Jesus that's free. It's free and you receive it by faith. And faith is an anti-work. That's why it's so important. It's, it's the way of saying, I can't do it. You did it all. I receive with an open hand all that you have done for me. And his name is Jesus. As Bunyan said, he's my righteousness. My, my good works can't contribute. My bad works don't take away from his salvation. He did it all. He did it all. Um, this includes, this salvation includes our justification, being, being considered righteousness with his righteousness by faith instantly, our sanctification, the working out of that, and then our glorification, being, that being completed when we see him face to face. Look briefly with me again at verses 27 and 28. What is the connection between those verses? In 27, we see a massive, as I just read, a massive opposition against God such that everyone in the world conspired, Jew and Gentile, to crucify Jesus. But verse 28, what? What does verse 28 say? So all of us rebel, we conspired against God, Jew and Gentile alike. What? Verse 28, to do whatever your hand, he's talking, they're talking about the Lord, the living God, the sovereign God, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. So 28 says, 27 says we all conspired against God. 28 says God used that and orchestrated that to accomplish his will, which was to save us. In other words, uh, I'm looking at Aaron now because Aaron's a martial arts guy, and some of you are too as well probably, and I don't know it. God is the ultimate judo master. What do I mean by that? Isn't judo the, one of the martial arts where you use people's weight against them? You use people's weight against them, Okay. To, to help take them down, okay? And what God did here par excellence is he used our opposite, he used and orchestrated, though he's not responsible for our evil and sin and opposition against him, he used and orchestrated and was sovereign completely in choreographing all of that enmity against him and his son to save us. He's the ultimate judo master. Um, he used... Satan, uh, our evil and Satan's evil to save us. Satan is God's puppet. That's one of the things that shows us here. Um, God will use opposition against him and his son to save people. This is what Psalm 2 tells us. Um, and this is why Psalm 2 ends in the way that it does. It says, hey, here's the solution. Kiss the son. Come into relationship with him. Worship him and him alone is the way that God's provided for your safety. And it ends by saying, hide in him. Blessed are all those who take refuge, who hide in him as if he's a cave and the furious tempest, the storm is passing by, the storm of God's just wrath against our sins. Hide in Jesus, who's the one who died in your place. And you will be truly blessed. That's how Psalm 2 ends. And that's... Um, that's what, we, that's what we're learning here, okay? So Romans eight twenty eight. a lot of us have heard it. It's a great fridge magnet verse. It says that God causes all things, all things includes this evil, this opposition, everything, not 99% of things. All things includes everything. God uses all things to work together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the cross is the perfect example of this. Satan is God's puppet, as I've said. We are not God's puppets, but we, I wanna underscore this, we are not in charge. We are not in charge. Thank God. God is in charge. If we were in charge, friends, none of us would be saved and not a single person would ever be saved. God is in charge of your salvation. This is a doctrine, listen to me, of grace. The fact that God is the one who saves you completely. You have nothing to do with it. Does he call you to turn to him and to repent and to believe on him? Of course but that is not you saving yourself. He has accomplished it and it is in Christ. And we are, I am beseeching you on behalf of God 
to come to God in Christ, to believe on Christ and that he has done the work. And, to, and not only as an unbeliever, but as a believer, to believe that again today, to abide in his finished work, that, that his finished work and, and, and his intercession for you now would be an outworking of the way that you live, okay? Not your own trying to scrub up and do things better. That's not it. That's not the Christian life. Um, in John 50, excuse me, in John, in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, 50, the last chapter of Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph wraps up the whole theme of this 14-chapter saga, and he says, his brothers conspired against him, sold him to slave, slave traders. He was thrown in prison unjustly against his sin down in Egypt. It was a disaster. At the end of all that, Joseph said, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So what they meant for evil and did freely, God used it and orchestrated all of it. He orchestrated the, his own brother, Joseph's own brother, selling Joseph into slavery and acting like they, he had been killed and showing his cloak to his dad and so on and so forth over decades. He orchestrated all that to save many people. John Frame says this. He says, again and again, it's God who brings about each event, good or evil, for his good purposes. God did not merely allow Joseph to be sent to Egypt. Rather, God himself sends him. What? Through human agency and evil, right? Though certainly the treacherous brothers are responsible. Throughout the scriptures, God stands behind each historical event. And then frame again. God controls the history of nations and of human salvation. If God does not control a vast number of individual lives, it's hard to imagine how he would be able to control the great developments of history. Do you see that? He can't control all of history and give us the book of Revelation if he doesn't control every single little thing along the way, and he does. And yet, we are responsible moral agents. This is a great doctrine of grace. That control begins when we are conceived, Frame goes on to say. God says to Jeremiah the prophet, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And knew you doesn't mean knew, knew of you, it means relationally, okay? It means conocer in Spanish, right? There's some, there's some Spanish for you. Thanks, thanks, Aaron, for praying for tongues for me. It's the conocer, it's the knowing, the personal knowing. It's the way that a man knows his wife and they conceived and had a child. It's the intimate knowing of the father and the son together and the way that salvation is God through Christ bringing us up into that knowing. Being known and knowing is the greatest thing in life. Do you know this? And this is how God said he knew Jeremiah before he was ever conceived in the womb. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah 1 verse 5. Um, I want to talk briefly now about uh, prayer. Prayer is the response of their praising God for his total sovereignty and salvation, okay? Um, prayer for power to continue proclaiming that salvation. We see this in verses 29 and 30. Notice what they don't say, a couple things, two things. Um, the what, first thing they don't say is God is sovereign in salvation. He does whatever he pleases. He's in total control. We have nothing whatsoever to do with our salvation or with the salvation of anybody in front of us. Therefore, we don't need to pray. That's the opposite of what they do. They immediately after praising God for his sovereignty, what? Hit the deck, hit their knees, pray. They pray for more power to continue to preach the gospel and to be vessels through which God in his salvation power would flow, sanctifying them and preaching the gospel through them. This is our model, friends. We must pray for power to proclaim the gospel. They had power, but another thing they don't do is say, we had power, that was amazing. Did you see how we stood in front of the intelligentsia and completely just befuddled them, okay? And completely defeated them and they had to let us go. They don't say that. And so therefore we can do it again. They, don't, they say, Lord, we need power again. We need your spirit again. The spirit of the living God, the spirit of Jesus, your Holy Spirit, fill us again for boldness to witness. Um, again, another thing they don't pray for. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What's another thing that they don't do, that they don't pray for? What we often tend to pray for first, which is protection. Am I saying that we don't need to pray for protection? I would never say that. Because we do and we should but I am saying they don't pray for protection. That's a textual fact. And, I'm, and I am saying that they don't, uh, that we often pray for it first. What do they pray for? That 
the most important thing to them, that through the opposition, they would keep preaching and that people would keep getting saved. That's what they pray for. Um, that's what they're passionate about. And that's what happens when the spirit of the living God comes upon them. Your chief concern is no longer for your protection, although you're praying for that, asking for that, hoping for that, wanting that. We are not masochists, okay? We are not sadists, okay? We don't, we don't enjoy evil against us. We don't wanna be harmed, but their chief overwhelming zeal when the spirit of God comes upon them is to see people saved and to see Christ go out in power through their lips and through their, um, through their acts, okay? Um, Lord, keep using evil for good. This is the economy of the cross. This is what God did constantly at the cross, and this is what they're praying would continue to happen. Um, they're praying, Lord, give us courage and boldness. Help us to push through it and not to back down. If you don't, we will back down. Um, help us to be perversely encouraged by the opposition and to recall the cross and to know that that's the way that you work. The economy of the cross until Christ returns is the way that his gospel goes forth in power and people get saved. As we are opposed and the spirit fills us, his word goes out in power and people get saved. That's how the church grows. It actually flourishes in opposition. You see that? So they pray. And then finally, thirdly, God answers in verse 31. I've already touched on this a bit in saying that they, they pray for a bold word, but they also pray that Jesus will be manifest what? In what they continue to do, right? So let's look at that briefly. We've touched on this a few times in this series We'll touch on it again, but look at verse 31. God answers. Um, let me just read it now. Well, I, hang on. We need to be filled with his spirit to proclaim his, world, his word boldly. Um, we see this over and over in this book, and we, we will see it again. We need the filling of the spirit, not for salvation. These guys are saved, but for powerful and effective witness. Um, notice that the emphasis, again, like I said, is not just on speaking the gospel, not just on proclaiming it, but it's on doing it and it's on demonstrating it as well. So let me, let me show you. Um, so we see a Jesus show and tell sandwich here. Um, if you look at the gospel in verse 29, the focus is on telling. It says, help us speak the word with boldness. And then in verse 31, the, the bread on the other side, they continued to speak the word with all boldness. God answered that prayer. In the middle, where's the meat? The middle is verse 30. And the meat's not more important than the bread, but it's, they're all together. They don't just say, help us to preach the gospel. That's pretty much where my prayers tend to end. Truly. But we need, to, we need to be instructed, not by our own theology, but by God's word helping form our theology. And God's word is this. In verse 30, they say this. Um, let, us have, let us continue, to, uh, they say to God, continue to stretch out what? Your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders, not through us, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm paraphrasing here, but through Jesus. In other words, help us to preach your gospel and to show your gospel as healing and miracles and all the gifts of the Holy Spirit um, continue to be performed. Um, let's let this challenge the way that we go forth and witness, showing and telling the gospel, letting the Holy Spirit and begging the Holy Spirit to help us to walk in prophecy, healing, words of knowledge, signs and wonders. We've begun to see it. May we see it more. Let me close with uh, taking us back to John Bunyan. Um, King Charles II, who um, was put on his throne after the regicide and after um, Oliver Cromwell, he referred to John Bunyan as, quote, that illiterate tinker prate. What a great English put down, as only the English could do. He referred to him that way in the presence of John Owen, who was a one-time vice uh, chancellor of Oxford University and was called, and is often called the Prince of the Puritans, who were very, I mean, Cambridge and Oxford essentially served for almost a century as a Puritan seedbed. They existed to train up Puritan preachers to preach the word of God. Um, he was extremely learned in multiple languages, dead and alive. He, uh, his, were my anchor group, if you're not in an anchor group, get in one. If you're not, uh, if you need help finding an anchor group, come to me or come to one of your parish leaders or come to one of the elder candidates, we can help you. But in my anchor group, um, we're walking through Hebrews right now. And hey, anchor group guys, what if we, uh, so John Owen, he, his Hebrews commentary alone is seven thick volumes. Uh, what, what if we just uh, use that as a guide? We'd probably never finish. Um, but that's actually a, a bucket list goal of mine is to make my way through those volumes. But his Hebrews commentary alone was seven, 800 page volumes. Um, he was very learned and very godly. 
And he responded to Charles II, please your majesty, could I possess that tinker's ability for preaching? I would gladly relinquish all my learning. Where was the power behind Bunyan's preaching? I want to suggest the power behind his preaching for the salvation of souls was in two places. One, as I started with, the man understood what we must for power and for salvation and for freedom and for joy and for comfort. Salvation is all of God in Christ. He cuts the load off. He took it on the cross. He buried it in the grave and he rose free. And as free as he rose, that's how free you are. You and I can add nothing to our salvation ever. Quite the contrary. He's done it all 100%. And that's the message that we have to preach. That's the freedom. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Another thing, though, that I think that was the secret to Bunyan's power is that he understood that he needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He needed the spirit of the living Christ who is alive, interceding for us and reigning to preach effectively. And we do too, to share in word and in deed. Um, We killed him. He used it to save us, to die in our place. Um, Believe on Jesus Christ, the righteous, your righteousness, not your own performance, but his, and you will be saved. That is the message of the gospel that has been burning up the world with salvation and spreading God's kingdom for the past 2,000 years. The same is happening today. It's happening here. This is the area he's called us to, and I want to be part of that unquenchable flame, and I know you do too. And so, Lord, would you, would you, uh, would you do it even through us and to us in Jesus' name? Amen. Lord, we um, love you. We thank you for loving us when we were crucifying you. For praying for us as we nailed you to the tree. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And Father, you listened. You forgave us through Christ who became our sin sacrifice. We thank you that even now we can do nothing to add to that salvation, but simply receive it in all the love that you have for us, not based on our own good works, but based on Christ. Would you free us even today, believer, unbeliever, if we have never trusted in you, would we do that um, perhaps for the first time today, Lord? Would you draw people here by cords of love to Jesus Christ? Would you draw us again if we've trusted in you, but just begun to put weight on other things, performance, begun to feel guilty about things, Um, that we've done, that you've taken care of, Lord, that are opposed to you. you, um, Would you help us to cast ourselves anew on Jesus Christ and on his complete salvation? We thank you that you're sovereign in salvation. We, We thank you for what you've done, for what you're doing, and for what you will do. And we pray it all in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.